Hey guys, it's your host Julian. This week I'm sitting down with Andrew Chessworth. Andrew got a start back at Disney, but the last couple years he's been working on a few passion projects. Two of these shorts in particular, One Small Step and The Brave Locomotive. I highly recommend you check out both of these shorts. These films are nothing short, no pun intended, of perfection. Last little bit of housekeeping before we roll into this episode. I want to give a special shout out to a couple of our patrons that helped make this podcast possible. Andrew, Bill, Brent, Patrick, and Jacob. Thank you all so much for your support. It means a lot. If you want to become a patron and help support this show, check the show notes below and sign up today. Now, let's get on to my chat with Andrew. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to What's My Head Podcast. I'm your host, Julian. So I'm joined by Andrew. Andrew, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, Julian. Absolutely, man. Ladies and gentlemen, before you watch this, I need you to do two things. You need to go watch One Small Step. These are all on YouTube and the brave locomotive because we're going to deep dive into both of these and we're going to be talking spoilers. So if you want to watch this and be informed of what we're talking about, go watch those two shorts. Those shorts will be in the show notes below. So click point go and tell Andrew what you thought about them. So Andrew, I got to tell you, I found you by the brave locomotive and then I went on to your previous short one small step. Which one do you want to start with? You want to start with your first one or do you want to start with the current one? Dealer's choice. Let's start with One Small Step since it was released first. All right. Well, you're going to make me cry right out the gate. Ladies and gentlemen, this one's a beautiful short. Um, so before I tell you what I thought of it, I, I would love to know, how does One Small Step enter your brain? Oh, my goodness. Well, it actually entered the brain of my co-director, Bobby Pontius. He was a character designer and animator at Disney, extremely talented. Uh, and he also now runs a kind of a philanthropic effort called Rise Up Animation to promote new mm-hmm. voices and animation, diverse perspectives and uh, backgrounds. And uh, he had pitched it at Disney with Trent Corey. And I think Disney passed on it for whatever reason. It was a different version of the story. It wasn't a Chinese American girl. And I think there was like a different timeline that the story went through. And then and when we were both invited to join this startup company called Tyco, he was directing it and I was the head of story. And it was kind of being reshaped to have a Chinese American perspective to suit the background of our producer, Shafu Zhang, as well as Bobby's background as an Asian American immigrant raised by a single parent. And so as the, the story was developing and the company was finding its footing, we were trying to say, like, what do we want our first project as a startup company to be? Uh, my role as a head of story on the project became a little more involved. And so they, as in Bobby and Shafu, invited me to co-direct with Bobby. uh, And I had a little bit more influence on the way the story was told from a directing standpoint, the shape of it in the script. Uh, I wrote a few drafts of the script um, that started from Bobby's outline. uh, And then I also really wanted to involve music at the very beginning. And so a composer I'd worked with in my commercial years prior to Disney joined us and I kind of interfaced with him on shaping a, a sound and a musical signature for the film that would give it this kind of once upon a time sort of feel despite being a very modern story. So I would say Bobby brought the the dreamer aspect of it, the girl who wants to be an astronaut and that sort of aspirational feel. Shafu brought the very authentic San Francisco, Chinatown, Chinese American family perspective because he had lived that life. And Bobby and Shafu both had a version of the single parent immigrant experience growing up. And I would say I brought more of like the, the filmic structure aspect of it, like sort of the, the shot design, the um, the way music and, and, and editorial work together and just the, the kind of classic movie bones. I kind of became like the, 
the the co-director who was all about the mechanics of the film. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a really rich partnership among the three of us. We all brought something very specific to it that made it what it was. And I think that's a big reason why the film has the depth that it has is the the combination of all the creators at the top of the the storytelling process. Um, we're very invested in it. I could tell. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, you've heard me talk many times when I've watched a bunch of different things, animated live action. This thing hits you so hard in the feels. I don't want to say, especially if you're a parent, because I've, I've been a parent, non-parent before, but I'm a parent now. So it hit me a lot harder. Um, just seeing the dad take such a vested interest in his daughter's goal or dream, right? To become a NASA astronaut and push her in a way that is, you see, I mean, you'll see it. You're, you got two kids, so you'll see it. You'll be a part of that. You'll push your kids towards their dreams. You'll be there for their failures, just like her dad was. Now, where it really started to turn, it really grabbed a hold of me as you see her get older and you see him get older because I'm going through that now. I'm seeing a 14-year-old here. He's seeing his 14-year-old. He's seeing her fail. He's seeing her succeed. He's seeing her try. He's seeing her cry. And he's there the entire time feeding her. He's there fixing her shoes. And there's just these little moments that you guys throw in. There's such, such personal touches. I loved the way you guys made the stars because they reminded me of the stars that my mom hung up on my ceiling when I was younger. Those little neon green things that you see in the 90s. So that was a personal touch. And then having a single mom work two jobs with five kids at home, depending on you know what era it was, that was a personal touch. And then getting to experience or see what my mom went through with with me going through that now with your kids growing older them not needing you as much anymore you kind of you know not being the the guy that's holding her back but you're the the guy that's kind of standing in their way of becoming who they're going to be eventually this movie felt so personal it felt it was so beautiful um like i said it it it, it moved me to tears and it's been not a long time since something's moved me to tears but it's been some time since something like this has brought me to tears, man. And you guys, absolutely. I didn't know I needed this movie as much as I needed this movie. You know what I mean? That that means a lot. Thank you for sharing that, Julian. And when Bobby and I were working on it, there was this kind of um, perspective of wanting to celebrate the people who supported us in our dreams, which Shafu and Bobby and I all had in common, was we all had parents who were extremely devoted to supporting us. We didn't have obstructionist parents which a lot of people in animation come from backgrounds where the parents are like are you sure you want to do that mm -hmm. maybe that's not such a great idea and so for all of us to have that devotion we wanted to pay our respects to that and show our appreciation for that in the form of a story bobby and i used to say our version of stepping onto the moon and thinking of the people who were there for us is you know our first day at disney bobby and i both yeah started at Disney within a month of each other. I started in October, 2011. I think he started in November of 2011. And for us, it was our dream job. And so being able to kind of do the, the symbolic version of that in the form of our film about a girl reaching for the stars meant a great deal. And so being able to kind of use animation to celebrate that journey we went on growing up was really, um, it was really special. We didn't want to waste the opportunity because we had funding to make this film. We had startup seed funding that Shafu had secured as our producer from China. 
Um, and we didn't want to squander it. We wanted to really make a film with a story worth telling because how often does that opportunity come along? Now, with one small step, if you were to if you were to say, hey, I want you to watch this movie, but you had to pick a specific scene or a specific moment in this movie that you think tells everything it needs to tell and shows all the heart that this movie has. Is there one scene that you worked on and maybe one scene that a friend of yours worked on or one of your employees worked on that tells this story flawlessly? Well, I think Bobby and Shafu and I would all have our own scene from the film that means something to us. For me, it's probably the moment where she steps on the moon and she, it's like, she's not even looking yeah. at what's in front of her. She's thinking about everything I'm going to lose. Got her there. Everything yeah. that got her there. Cause that's the message of the film. It's like mm. the, your, your dream means one thing to you when you're young and it means something different to you when you're older and I guess that's the the best way I can put it is like that 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 hindsight is so different. You know, you've achieved your dream, you've reached your goal, but it means something so different that you could have never imagined when you were a kid. And it's about the people who helped you get there, not the thing itself. And that's that's certainly how Bobby and I felt when we were at Disney, and it's certainly how our character feels when she when she steps onto the moon and thinks of her father. Um, so that that's the scene that I think just really guts me. Um, because mm-hmm. I think Bobby and I get emotional by the film because it, it wasn't just like a thing one of us wrote and directed and put into the world. It was very much a communal experience between Shafu and Bobby and me and all of our crew. And I think that experience of all of us kind of being able to be part of the the genesis of it, but also being able to step outside of it and take it in as a, as an audience, that's a unique experience to have as a director. Um, I like, I don't have that same relationship with the brave locomotive. That's, that's very much like, a, I just like put that out into the world. And I'm like, yeah. what do people think of it? Whereas with one small step, it, it kind of went on this long transformative Genesis with a lot of different people influencing it, but it wasn't too many cooks. It was like the right amount of cooks that were all in, sort of harmony with each other and i think that's how the best things get made and uh, so yeah definitely that scene of luna stepping on the moon is is the big one for me but uh for me personally i i storyboarded the whole sequence where they imagine the box as a spaceship and yes it, it's sort of the playtime with her and her dad we had a different version of that that was less playful less fun and it didn't really feel like what childhood actually feels like and that was always the scene in the film in the early reels where i'm like this isn't quite like pulling me in it's not quite endearing me to the characters it was more like 2001 space odyssey but with kids a kid and her yeah. parent and it, it it was it was too romantic or too formal it didn't have the, the spontaneity and the silliness that playing with your parent when you're a little kid actually feels like and so I just kind of straight ahead storyboarded that whole scene. And that's what you see in the film, just more finished. Uh, and that, I think, helps cement a, a relationship that you get invested in and can feel nostalgic for later because it felt authentic. It didn't feel yes. for, formal or dramatic. And so we wanted the film to feel like what life feels like. It's silly. It's messy. It's frustrating. It's sad. It's absurd. Yeah. And then it's heartbreaking and then it's you know melancholic and 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 reverential and 
we, we wanted like all of the the feelings of life to be in there, not just the serious ones, because that mm-hmm. doesn't feel real. That that can start to feel more like propaganda. And I think our harshest criticisms of our own film in the early stages was this feels like like an advertisement for feel good, or it feels like propaganda for you know family values. It doesn't feel like like a real life. And so it was a it was a hard journey to pack all of those feelings and moments into seven minutes <laughs> I, don't, I don't see how you guys did this because after i finished watching it you, you just brought it up packing it into seven minutes i watched it i'm like man that was a good 20 how was this eight minutes andrew how was this eight minutes <laughs> this much heart this much soul this much this much sadness this much happiness this much pride uh, pride um, you know, the scene where you were talking about that meant the most to you getting off and then seeing that whole collage of where she came from, seeing all of those people with their kids, all of those families, you know, the first thing that came to mind was like, it takes a village to raise a kid, right? Yeah. It takes all of these people to push this person out in the world and make them a good person. Um, you know, I loved that scene, but I loved seeing just her dad every time she would come home defeated. He wouldn't tell her to keep her head up, but he would put a dumpling, put something in her bowl, get her to eat, to keep her head up, to keep her spirits up, to keep her motivation, her drive up. You wanted this. Go get it. Right. He was always inching her towards that goal. And then she realized that after she took a step away from her goal, when her dad passed away, spoiler alert, ladies and gentlemen, probably should have did that before. But when she took a step back and she saw this is where this is, it already got me when you see the cane on the ground. It got me even harder when you see all of her shoes in the drawer. And I was like, damn it, damn it, Andrew. It's starting to come back now, man. Uh, was there, was there, whenever you have a movie, whenever you guys are working on a show, there's typically like a driving message or a motto or a mantra that, that every you know studio or every project has. Was there one, I know this was five years ago, but was there one that you guys might've had, like, we got to find the heart or we got to find the story. Was there one that sticks out? For one small step, it was just, I just remember it being a love letter to the people who help us achieve our dreams mm-hmm. and you know the, the superficial notion of reaching for the stars. But I think it also was deeply intertwined with Tyco as a company, as a startup studio. Their mission was to bridge Eastern and Western values and perspectives mm-hmm. through animation. And so a Chinese American immigrant story was a big part of it. And I think that added a layer to it that wasn't in the version that was pitched to Disney, which was just, I think it was just like a regular American girl who wanted to be an astronaut and you saw the stages of her life and it was well, well thought out, but it was very straightforward. And I think adding that extra perspective to it gave it another layer of um, like nuance that, that made it specific because there's an, there's an extra layer of challenge to being a single parent and an immigrant parent mm-hmm. in the United States. And I think, and then to go from that to walking on the moon, it gave the story bigger contrast and stories and drama love contrast. And so that helped us on a personal level and on a cinematic technical level Um not to be too formal about it, but oh, no, there fine. were just a there were just a lot of um, upsides to the the way it ended up. I think, and it was it's funny like the upsides to it were also the things that made it more specific to the people making it, 
which was, it's always a good thing when you can make it more personal and making, and when making it more personal makes it more dramatically relevant. All right. As we take a pause for the cause, if you haven't yet, you should check us out on all social media platforms by searching at in my head pod. There you can see who we've got coming on. And if you feel so inclined to, you could submit a question to be asked. Now let's get back to the show. And it made us, like I said, I saw myself as that dad, me getting older, my kids getting older, you know, them going out into life, starting their life, me kind of on the backside of my life. It's, I don't mean to get so dramatic or melodramatic or melancholy, but it's just like, it, it felt real. Like I, I've, I can see it's like a parallel universe. If I was watching my life go, I mean, that's what my life is going to end up being, you know? And like I said, this one was just so special. Um, the other thing that I love that you hit on earlier was the music. At what point when you guys are working on this is music a focal point? You know, are you thinking like when you're animating, like, I think this would be the type of music play and that plays into your style or what you're working on. How does music influence you into this one in particular? Yeah, um, this is this is interesting because the reason we did music the way we did on one small step was because of my experience on the brave locomotive uh, years ago, when I developed the locomotive project, I worked with a composer named Tom Hamilton to shape the music while we were doing the storyboards, like the old Disney films. And while locomotive was on the shelf, you know, collecting dust on my hard drive, I was invited to do this one small step project. And I, I just had an idea early that I thought this project could really benefit emotionally from shaping the music while we were doing the story reels, instead of just boarding it out straight ahead uh, and then putting some temp music on it and saying like, okay, then we'll rescore it later. I thought there was an opportunity to do something really specific that made it feel like the way the old Disney films made us feel like Dumbo, Bambi, mm -hmm. the really emotional early films where Frank Churchill and Lee Harline and uh, Oliver Wallace, they were, they were crafting the music on these Disney films while they were shaping the visuals. And it gives them such a, um, like a rich intertwined kind of feeling. Like you watch the opening of Peter Pan or the opening of Bambi or the opening of Pinocchio with Geppetto, that music was crafted with those story drawings mm -hmm. and that mindset, it was a different style of music and a different tone that was the approach we took on locomotive and i wanted that on one small step for that reason it's like mixing a very contemporary story with a very classical format of animation storytelling and uh steve horner was a composer who i'd worked with in commercials and he was very nimble very versatile and uh, even though i didn't work with him on locomotive i thought he had a vocabulary that was a little more like contemporary and I'd worked with him more frequently and more recently. So I thought this could be a good marriage for this specific project. Uh, and also he works only on the box as in he's like a one man music studio. So that on a practical level suited our startup resources as well. So there were a lot of just reasons that I thought this could be a good fit. Um, so I, I, interfaced a lot with Steve. I would go over to his studio in Encino. I live in Burbank. So 15 minute drive. And we would just spend all day in his studio looking at the boards 
hashing out melodies and talking about like, oh, we could reuse this theme here, or it'd be really powerful if this theme at the beginning was explored in a more dramatic way here. And this is when we're still like in the middle of storyboarding the film. So it was a very uh, um, like rich process crafting every aspect of the film together, you know, uh, simultane simultaneously. So Bobby would be back at the Burbank studio kind of designing the environments, the look of the characters, you know, coming up with a lighting scheme and a color scheme for the film. And then I'd be at Steve's place working on the music with the storyboards. Bobby and I each storyboarded about 50% of the film. And then our producer Shafu and I shared editing duties. And then I would kind of do the fine tuning and the final edit to really work with Steve on how the music would work with that. And we had a, a fully storyboarded film with no animation with like basically nearly finished music and then steve did a polish pass on the music once the animation was more finished but uh it was really cool that we basically had a finished version of the film before any animation was even done is so when when steve is doing this is uh -huh. it you said that the, the script would change a couple different times once you came on and then you, yeah. know, you guys were really trying to flush it out was his initial pass of the music like dead set for what you guys were looking for? Or do you remember how long it might have taken to to flush out the sound and the vibe that you guys were looking for? We had an initial meeting with him and we just showed him some story beat drawings of different scenes in the film. We showed him the character designs and we pitched him the concept and he kind of had some ideas percolating of what the signatures could sound like, like the dad's signature was the cello. Uh, mm -hmm. And Luna's signature was the bells. Uh, and he would kind of play with different variations on those signatures based on the scene. And that would give it this kind of like Peter and the wolf kind of feel like that. We specifically mentioned Peter and the wolf where, you know, grandpa paused the bassoon and the wolf is like this kind of more menacing sound. Um, I think in Peter and the wolf, they're each a specific instrument. And so we wanted some of that feel with the old Disney melodic structure but a more contemporary arrangement so it didn't feel completely rooted in the past because the film takes place in the 90s 2000s and 2010s um over the over the span of the montage but uh but yeah steve got involved more heavily once we had some sequences storyboarded i think the final sequence in the film which bobby storyboarded with like her landing on the moon and the doors opening and her stepping out. That might've been one of the first bits that Steve did some music for. Uh, and we knew that whatever we did for the end was going to be done at the beginning to kind of predict where we were going. So we kind of worked backwards. The, the final sequence in the film was one of the first things that we got and just committed to. It was all the stuff leading up to it that kind of kept changing and shifting over time. And I would say the montage in the middle of the film was the messiest part. You know, the things would, would change the most. Yeah. And what if we showed her doing this instead of that? Or, oh, maybe we don't show this. Maybe we don't show the dad having struggles with customers at work. Maybe we don't show her going on a date with a boy and the dad disapproving. It was like getting a little dense. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we didn't want to like, we didn't want to kind of touch on too many things that could open doors that would we'd have to close later. So um, we, 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 yeah, we kind of worked 
on a lot of different ways that montage could do could go before we settled on what we what we ended up with but steve was a real champ and the musical signatures actually didn't change that much it was just kind of the little flourishes and it would change as we changed around uh some of those things that we were seeing in that montage now with you saying you started with that last scene first and then work your way backwards is that typically how you like to do it you like to start at the end and then kind of fill in the pieces as you go backwards <laughs> it, i think it depends on the story with one small step i think that one we just cracked it and we didn't feel compelled to change it we would have changed it if we felt like we needed to but i think for some reason it just felt like you know this is this ending works and because we we had a script that we were happy with we had like four or five written drafts of a script. I had four different eight page scripts and I'd read them aloud to the studio each time there was a new draft and we'd talk about it in the room. We'd write down our notes. I'd go home and kind of readjust the draft based on the notes from our core team. And I think because we kind of broke it down on the page really tightly first, once we storyboarded that final sequence, we're like, yeah, this feels like what we were happy with on the page. And the script had more of those beats in the montage depicted. And when we were editing it together, we're like, that doesn't quite work. What if I drew this? And it became more improvisational after we had to actually see what we had scripted visualized. Uh, and so the, the montage in the middle changed a lot. The big change was the fantasy sequence. And actually that fantasy sequence I did because I did that sort of spontaneously and improvisationally after there was a previous version, I just kind of cut that together a certain way. And then Steve wrote some music to it after the fact. And I think I maybe just cinched it up a little bit to what he, mm -hmm. what he uh, orchestrated. So that was maybe a bit that was more traditionally visualized and then scored because it came a little bit later into the, the story process. I did have one more thing about, one small step that I felt very passionate about as a co-director on the project, like on, on top of being given the, the great privilege of getting to work with Steve on the music and having that trust from my co-director and producer, I felt very strongly that I wanted the character animation to feel like a mix of Studio Ghibli, like Miyazaki's mm. very yeah. subtle, observed, precise acting mm. with the kind of 1940s flourishy Disney animation because that felt like a great mix of east and west yes. that was true to the the vision of our company like what if you had like these more miyazaki inspired characters moving a little bit more like classic disney but not to the point that it's annoying or distracting and it doesn't feel unnatural uh, so there was like a look and feel to the animation that we wanted uh, that we were very specific about and I'm i'm really happy with how that turned out you, you should be. This is 10 out of 10, you know, would recommend to everybody. Um, like I said, this is this is something I needed to see when I needed to see it. And I'm really I'm really glad that I that I reached out to you and said, hey, I'd love to have you on. And I'm even more glad that you said, yeah, I'll come on. And then that led me down to seeing this one, because like I said, it was it was it was perfect. It was a fucking masterpiece. At the end of the day, I look at this and I'm like, there's not too many things that I could put on the same level as this that's coming out. It, it, like I said, it, 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 it blew me away um, in every possible way you could think of. Um, before we rotate off into this one and uh, rotate into the brave locomotive, if you could sum up one small step in one word, one sentence, one phrase, what would it be? 
gratitude, I think. Yeah. Beautiful. You want to expound upon that a little bit? (laughs) (laughs) Grateful for the opportunity to make it. Grateful for the people who created the environment where I could help make it with them. Grateful for the people like my family who supported me and this whole career that that I'm on. And um, it's just when you're a part of a project like that, you realize just how much of it is circumstantial and a result of good fortune and trying to make the most of the good fortune that comes your way. And the circumstances around that project were just so unique and so special. And I'm just so grateful I got to be a part of it. Beautiful. I'm grateful to Bobby and Shafu for trusting me to be in that creative leadership role with them. I'm grateful for every single person that lent a pencil, lent a word, lent a musical note, lent a piece of whatever. I mean, even if it was just spitballing, you guys were working on ideas. Ladies and gentlemen, go watch this one and then go watch The Brave Locomotive. Um, Watch it 100 times and and really kick that view count up. so the next one we're going to rotate into, and this is actually how I found you. And then when I started doing a deep dive into um, your career, I'm just like, dude, how <laughs> how the fuck do I not know this guy's name? I'm, I'm just sitting here. I'm like, I've seen this movie. I've seen this movie a thousand times. I've seen that one 400 times this week alone. I mean, it's just <laughs> so many movies that you've worked on that you've lent your fucking talents to that I'm just blown away by. I mean. And then I go and see, like I said, the brave locomotive. That's how we, that's how I got here. Ladies and gentlemen, that's how I found Andrew. Um, I want to throw a couple movies out there that I thought that I was pulling from, from inspiration. Like I said, I do these both sober and stoned. So these, some of these might be a little far-fetched, but the initial pass I watched at sober and I pulled Radigan for the Baron. I was getting a Radigan slash Vincent price from the great mouse detective. Okay. So that's one. Yep. Um, I got, and we talked a little bit about this one before, but uh, Roger Rabbit. And where I pull Roger Rabbit in is the train sequence, almost like the weasels dying and floating off into heaven with the halo above their head. I took that <laughs> yep. when the brave locomotive blew up. And then the last one I took uh, was the soggy bottom boys from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. And then that was the ending. What was it? Were they called the dollies at the end? Was that was that what was there? Well, the, the, the dollies were the female trio. And then Lonesome Dan Casey, who's a Minneapolis based mm-hmm. folk singer, did the 1930s style end credits that we wanted to put in. So, yeah. And specifically, we did the end credits in the style of the 1930s. Because that's sort of a reference to the way Disney did some of their musical shorts. Mm-hmm. Like the Martins and the Coys was a 1930s kind of comedic folk song. And then in the 40s, Disney adapted it into a, a musical segment on Make My Music um, and kind of punched up the music to have more of a 40 sound. So we thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool if the end credits were kind of like the hole in the wall folk song of the brave yeah. locomotive that the rest of the short kind of elaborated on. <laughs> Dude, it, this one was so fun. And the other one that I, I just, I forgot, I just did a, I'm doing a currently doing a deep dive into UPA. I yeah. can't, rem, I can't remember the name of, of the president. I feel like such a horrible, oh, horrible uh, Ro- Roosevelt. They did like yes. a, there, yes. There's like there's a card like an election cartoon where you see Roosevelt's yes. face on the front of a train. Yeah. So Brave Locomotive obviously said this one was something you've been working on for a very long time. Um, yeah. It's been a passion project. You said you love Disney. You love trains. You loved this. You loved that. Let's put them together. And this is my love letter to animation, to trains, to everything I'm into, man. So how does this one come about? How does the Brave Locomotive happen? 
So in 2008, I was one year out of school. I'd graduated from MCAD, the Minneapolis College of Art and Design in 2007. My first year out of school, I was at a startup company called Make that was founded by some elder statesmen, classmates of mine. Uh, and after about a year of working in commercials, both in 2D and CG, I had wanted to kind of make a passion project about all the things that I loved as a little kid that made me want to get into animation in the first place. And I also thought if I made such a project, perhaps I could be noticed by Disney or Pixar and join their ranks. So it was sort of like, a, uh, I'm young and I want to do this, so I'm going to do it kind of mindset. Mm -hmm. And when I say the things that made me want to join animation in the first place, I mean like core memories, like some of the first things I ever remember seeing were like Pecos Bill and Little Toot and Melody Time. I remember loving the sound of the Andrews sisters singing the narration for that tugboat cartoon. The Brave Engineer, I remember seeing just that Casey Jones train, like going through that cartoon landscape mm -hmm. and loving it. And even just like the, the boom, 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 boom. There's like this song for the freight train that he crashes into. That's just like somebody just like drilled that into my head and I never forgot it. Yeah. There's just these memories of how picture and music and trains and animation relate together that was just in me. And I'm like, that's got to come out at some point. And I wanted to make a project where just all of that came out. And so, yeah, like I said, in 2008, I started sketching ideas for it. I talked to one of my animation professors about it. I kind of pitched it to him, like, this is something I'm thinking of doing, because I stayed friends with him after I graduated. And he's like, you got to talk to my friend, Tom Hamilton. We've been friends for a long time. He's a great sound designer and musician. He's got his own studio here in Minneapolis. And he loves Carl Stalling. And Carl Stalling famously did the skeleton dance music uh -huh. for the early Disney Silly Symphony, right? It's like one of the first musical cartoons ever made. And Carl Stalling did that. This was before Carl Stalling went to Warner Brothers, but Carl Stalling began his career at Disney. Hamilton loved Stalling. And we kind of geeked out about Lee Harline, Oliver Wallace, Frank Churchill, all those just insanely talented composers that a lot of people have forgotten, but who were just instrumental in the Disney that we know and love today. Uh, like Lee Harline and Frank Churchill were responsible for the music in Pinocchio. And that's like, the theme song for all of Disney, right? Yeah. And then Oliver Wallace's score for Peter Pan incorporated some ideas that Frank Churchill developed years earlier. And Oliver Wallace's opening music for Peter Pan, like the nursery stuff and Peter Pan flying into the nursery for the first time. Some of my favorite stuff ever. It's gorgeous. And so that mindset was something that Tom and I geeked out about and I thought, yeah, I had this little story I presented. It's it's like a retelling of the little engine that could, but kind of through a true grit. <laughs> yeah. What if, you know, what if like the 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 engineer and his train were like a cowboy and his horse, and it's like the last ride of an old hero. And it's kind of the way that Paul Bunyan and Pecos Bill and Johnny Appleseed celebrate a life and then that life comes to an end. It's it's the classic kind of western and uh, tall tale structure that attracted me. So it, it felt like if you're going to tell a story about a train, what's the most dramatically 
exciting way to do it that like justifies okay well like why a train okay well if it's animated that's exciting and but like what's the purpose of a train it's like to get to a to b it's to like serve a purpose but then that purpose is usually you know one upped by the passage of time so that's interesting that's like a cowboy being replaced by modernity and so there were a lot of just really classic archetypes that we could caricature and have fun with and really kind of sink our teeth into musically and visually. So yeah, Melody Time was the the sort of archetype for it. Pecos Bill meets Little Toot meets Brave Engineer with this kind of Coen Brothers cowboy wrapping around it. These were all part of like our earliest conversations. And I think for the most part, they made it into the end result. But yeah, like Roger Rabbit, that was sort of a flavor we wanted to infuse into it because Roger Rabbit itself is a caricature of the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the era that we were pastiching here. So we thought we would draw some inspiration from that. Um, so yeah, anyway, it all started with these really exciting conversations. 2008, 2009, I storyboarded the film while Tom Hamilton was coming up with these music cues. And my God, it's like every cue he came up with was just a banger. I don't even remember giving him (laughs) notes. It was like, yes, that's the Linus and Henry song. Yes, that's the Samson song. Yes, that's the Linus is banished song. Yes, that is like the the melancholic reprise for the finale. And just, it, it was like every every hit was just like a home run with his music. And it was just such an exciting process for me because it, it kind of made me draw faster and think faster. And we, we actually wrote like two more minutes of music than we ended up putting in the film. Cause I ended up cutting it down and disciplining the storytelling a little bit after coming back to it years later, but man, all the music was just there and it was just about putting it together in the best way cinematically so 2009 we recorded most of it 2010 i was kind of chipping away at it but then my commercial career was going really well and i had two or three hand-drawn projects i was doing at work that were that were just taking up all of my creative energy because i was so into it and they were Mm -hmm. great opportunities and so this film was kind of happening on the side it kind of took a pause 2011 comes around Um, And I'm like, wow, we've recorded the music like over a year ago. I kind of want to get moving on this side project. And then I realized I'd been accepted into Disney because I would apply like every other year. And so Brave Locomotive kind of lost some of its, its, uh, its steam again. (laughs) It's like for it first time, it kind of ran out of gas in 2010 was because I was having some exciting things happen at work. Then in 2011, I got hired at Disney and I'm like, man, this project that I was so passionate about, it just keeps getting pushed to the side. Uh, And so by the time I got hired at Disney, I realized maybe, maybe this is a project that I'm going to have to find time for far into the future. Once I don't know, I've had more success or I've had more opportunities to kind of have support to finish it. And so I put it on the back burner, focused on my Disney career for five, six years. In 2015, when I was working on Zootopia, I kind of started feeling anxious about it. I'm like, I did all this work on it. I'm, I don't know if I'm ever going to finish it. I want to put something out there. So I put my work print of the opening sequence that I'd animated in 2011 on YouTube. And in a short amount of time, it got like 8 million views and all these excited comments like, what is this project? What is this? Like, where did this come from? This feels like classic Disney. 
And that puts some, some motivation back into my soul to finish it. And so I kind of like put a pin in that, like, all right, I am going to finish this at some point, hopefully in the next few years, because there's an audience for it. And I actually, while I was working on Zootopia and Moana, I was getting like a lot of fan letters about this YouTube half finished sequence. It's like not even a complete <laughs> film. It's not even finished animation. And I'm getting fan letters about it from rail fans and animation enthusiasts. So it, it kind of just never went away. And then my Tycho journey happened and I was like, Hey, I'm going to borrow from my workflow on brave locomotive for one small step. So that kind of, that DNA got infused into that project. Uh, and then I worked on Klaus uh, and I got to realize my dream of working on a hand-drawn film and my experience on locomotive, I felt made me better prepared for, for that journey. And then in 2020, I got hired to work on a show called my dad, the bounty hunter as a character yes. designer because of my work on Klaus. They saw my work on Klaus and they thought that would be useful to them on that show uh, in the design department. Uh, and then the pandemic hits and we're all stuck at home. And I'm thinking to myself, like, maybe now's the time <laughs> I, I basically work and then I'm still at home where we like, we can't go anywhere. And so I reached out to uh, a contact of mine who's become a friend, Vivian Madrano. She's known for hell of a boss and has been hotel. And she's one of the most successful independent animators ever. Like her series got picked up by a 24 hell of a boss is like one of the most watched things on YouTube. And I asked her, so this short is a little different. I'm aiming for like kind of a feature quality vintage feel, but I'm doing it independently. Do you think this is more of a Kickstarter thing or a Patreon thing? And she was like, well, how do you like to work? I mean, if you do Kickstarter, you're going to be focusing more on like merchandise and benefits and swag and kind of selling it. Do you like Nickelodeon? Do you like whiskey or whiskey cocktails? Then you should hang out with us. I'm Ty. I'm Sean. And we run Whiskey Lodeon the podcast. Ty, what is this podcast about? It's where we drink whiskey or whiskey cocktails while rewatching the old school Nickelodeon shows we loved growing up. And let's be honest, we go on a lot of tangents. So many tangents. Are we on a tangent right now? Yeah, I think so. Oh my gosh. Well, we got to get back. We are covering Rugrats, Hey Arnold, Are You Afraid of the Dark, all the golden greats of Nickelodeon. And these shows give us so much joy. And we want to bring you that same joy. Joy. So find us wherever you get your podcast at Whiskey Lodia. And I got to cut you off right now because we honestly cannot afford any more ad space and it really just kind of has to end right. So for this much, you can see, you know, this many spoilers or this many behind the scenes things about our process. So people can basically pay you to watch you make it and then you can work at a pace that uh, is comfortable and the money coming in, you can use to accommodate whatever you're able to like whether it's backgrounds or a little bit of animation and that'll tell you kind of how quickly you can finish your film. And so that ended up working out and within two and a half years, there were enough resources to finish it. So the pandemic ended kind of before the film did, but like I said, 15 years in the making, but like kind of two meaningful years at the front and like two and a half to three meaningful years at the back. So it's like five years kind of at either end of 15 in total. And that makes me feel a little bit better about how long I lived with it. <laughs> <laughs> but but not, it was such good advice to kind of work at a pace with a model that suited mm -hmm. me. The pandemic kind of 
gave me the sort of uh, the time to set up that Patreon infrastructure and get momentum going with the team. A lot of the background artists were people I reached out to on Instagram. A lot of the animators were people I had worked with on Klaus. And a lot of them were waiting for another 2D project to come around. And this was something that they could lend their energy to. Um, and most of them just did like two or three shots in the film, but two or three shots times, you know, five or 10 or 15 animators. It's like, that's half the film right there. So it ended up being really, really helpful um, having that network to pull from. And um, fortunately people were excited about the the flavor and subject matter. And it was a style that was fun to work in. People seemed to have a good time animating on it. <laughs> so a lot of things just came together and there's a little bit you may have noticed of a, it's a wonderful life reference at the end of the film with the angel and the no one's a failure who has friends. It's a direct nod to that film. It's one of my favorite films. And I thought, you know, the journey of this little locomotive and the community around him, it is, it's like a life well lived that had mm -hmm. meaning despite that purpose being cut off from him in his prime. And I felt like even though it's a train and it's kind of a whimsical co concept, there is something relatable to that. I think a lot of people feel cut off in their prime when they feel like they've been made obsolete or they get replaced by new technology. And a couple of people asked me, like, is this film about being a CGI AI and animation and AI? And I was like, it's actually not. When I was first coming up with it, I thought it was maybe alluding to the fall of hand-drawn animation in the United States and the rise of CG animation and how, you know, it's, it's a, there's a conflict where like we love both, but we don't want one to die at the expense of the other. And that was on my mind back in 2008 when I started it. And now in 2023 with it finished it, the conversation is just different, different characters, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of 2d and 3d, it's like art and AI and, and I feel like that makes it a more timeless story. Everyone can relate to, I think, that feeling of being replaced suddenly and being very afraid and feeling oh, yeah. like, like, what do I do with myself now? Um, and I think a lot of people also struggle between that balance of like doing something useful and doing something that you care about. And I think the film is trying to reconcile how you work both of those things into your life. So that's sort of the the deeper side of the film that you're not supposed to kind of take too seriously at face value, but I wanted to make sure it was in there because that meant something to me personally. And uh, I'm glad people are picking up on it. It's, it's funny how like when you put something into a film with full intention, it's crazy how people see it. You know, like mm -hmm. you said, Radigan and Franklin Roosevelt. And I'm like, I, yes, I was literally thinking of those two things with that character. I wanted the, yeah. the the Roosevelt cigarette holder and the smile and the optimism that Roosevelt had because Roosevelt was a guy who had every reason to feel, you know, like gypped, right? Being being disabled and and having all these things kind of thrown he 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 was dealt a good hand in life with his privilege and he was dealt a, a tough hand in life with his disability, but he just made the most of it and just I find him to be such an inspiring figure. And I, I feel like when people think of the future, they think of the, the most optimistic version of it. So the Baron is like this guy who is like, the future is great and bright. Don't you see it? But for Henry, it means like, but 
but my life that I love, oh, I guess, I guess that's gone now. So I think that's the 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 contrast I wanted to play with because I I definitely feel both of those things. And I wanted to make a film where there were no villains, there were just antagonizing forces, because that tends to be more like what life is like. And a lot of the old Disney films are like that. Like Pinocchio, yeah. it's a film where there's like villains in it, like Honest John and the Coachman. They're villains, but they just kind of are like these intersecting forces in Pinocchio's life that he has to deal with. And then they go away. There's They're like NPCs. No they're, yeah, they're NPCs. They are. There's no comeuppance for any of the villains in Pinocchio, which is crazy. Like the whale Stromboli, the coachman, Honest John, they just do their thing and go away. Mm -hmm. And that's like kind of what life is like. These bad things enter your life and go away. And you're like, well, they're probably fine somewhere scamming <laughs> somebody else now. But I, 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 I like always liked that about Pinocchio, that it was there were authentic antagonists but it's not following the typical villain structure and paul bunyan is like that and pecos bill is like that and so i wanted it to be like that in this short where you know samson shows up he's got an agenda that he's going to fulfill he's just doing what's expected of him and all that's what all the characters are doing in the film they're all just doing what's expected of them and i think that that made it interesting to to animate from from just like a staging perspective and, uh, and a personality perspective and like how do the scenes play out when everyone's just doing what they think they're supposed to do no one's like outright trying to kind of take over the world or anything like that <laughs> well ladies and <laughs> that gentlemen was, that was a long tangent i don't even know what the question was that got me there <laughs> how how you how you how this one came about how this one came to be and yeah. If I can point to just one thing, and and I love tangents like that. Um, I love getting to see why, what, and how something influences you guys, and how you can take that, be inspired, and put it back into the thing you were trying to give to the world, like they gave to us so many years ago. And if yeah. I could just freeze frame for just one second, that is why this short and one small step sticks out so much the passion you just shown exuded from you because of this project you wanted to do 15 years ago that is why people connect to it when you can interject your personality when you can interject heart you can interject soul you can interject something and make us feel for something that we know is not real however in an alternate universe, this could be real because this runs parallel with same thing with one small step. It's I'm running parallel with that story, just like I'm running parallel and history ran parallel with the brave locomotive. You saw the world getting built behind him every time Samson would go and every time the, 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 the brave locomotive would go, you would see the civilization getting built history being made, you know, so you could travel with them while they're going and why or while towns are being built but just the fact that you had so much enthusiasm you had so much fun like this this oozes passion project this oozes like fuck dude this dude this chick this whatever did this to make this gave a shit about what they were doing and wanted you to love it and wanted you to feel and see why they loved it and why they were doing something. So a hundred percent, the reason that this one was a great success and the last one is a great success was because people like you that care about what they're doing and want people to enjoy spending eight minutes on something. This is another one that felt like it was two, three times the amount of length that actually was when I oh, wow. finished it and I see it, I'm like, how the... 
blew me away again. How do we do this much in just eight? I'm I'm so blown away. And you said you did. Um, there was something I wrote down that I wanted to circle back to um, that you were chipping away for editing. So you had two more minutes of music played yeah. at the end. So obviously this is a 15 year passion project for you. First off, it's a two part question. So the first part is what was it like when you finally hit save or whatever the programs you use to do it? So you're finished. You're not touching anymore. So you're done editing. So what first part, what did that feel like? I I think I even I posted a tweet the night that I finished the film, like exported mm -hmm. it, sent it off. And I think the tweet I shared was that clip from Indiana Jones where he's running through the jungle. He jumps in the water. There's arrows flying at him. He grabs onto the plane and that plane just fucking flies away. And the music is so triumphant. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, that's what it feels like. It feels yeah. like it feels like you're desperate and you're racing. I was racing against the deadline to submit to the LA shorts film festival. And so I was like, I needed something. And that nice. was my something just to kind of commit to being done. And so that's why that particular scene resonated with me in that moment, because I was, I was like losing sleep. I felt sick. You know, I had a day job, but I'm trying to deliver this independent film out of premiere into the, the, you know, the inbox of this film festival. And, uh, I go to bed and I just felt like I was going to die of a heart attack. Right. But it felt so good. It felt like the biggest weight of my life off my shoulders because there, there's like a saying that in filmmaking or, or any creative endeavor, when you've got like an unfinished project, you feel like there's just unfinished business in mm -hmm. your life. And you know, one small step, was only 13 months of my life. That was my day job. I had a paycheck coming in to make one small step, unheard of for a project like that. Whereas Brave Locomotive was never the only thing I was doing. At any given point in my life, it was never the only thing I was thinking about during the day. One small step had the privilege of being that for me. Brave Locomotive was always the kind of, you know, stepchild that I was playing with at night, but never got to kind of spend time with during the day. And so getting to release it into the world like that was just so cathartic and, and special. Yeah. And I, I like, I can't even describe <laughs> beyond that video clip. I just mentioned how it feels. <laughs> well, that's a perfect representation. Like I made it. I survived. Oh my God. <laughs> that's awesome. Like I said, just you're, you're, your enthusiasm exudes from this chat, just like that enthusiasm exudes from that short you put out, man. Like I said, I loved both of them. Um, the second part to that question I wanted to ask you, how hard was it to edit this down? Like, I mean, I, I have to imagine if you're working on something for 15 years, before you started editing, do you remember how long it was before you got yeah, it down it was, to like the tight eight and a half? It was, it was about, uh, well, the, the, the final Brave Locomotive is about just shy of six minutes of actual like animated scenes. There's mm -hmm. like 12 or 15 seconds of opener and then about 50 seconds of end credits. So the actual body of the film is like just under six minutes, I think. Uh, and I think the original body of the film was over eight minutes. So there were a couple, it, it was hard to edit it, but I will say it was made easier because of my experience on one small step and just the mere passage of time and being able to anticipate notes from people I respect. Um, 
so the passage of time on the project actually helped it quite a bit be a more disciplined film. And there is like this funny symbiotic relationship between One Small Step and Brave Locomotive. Because of my musical experience on Locomotive, that inf informed how I developed the music for One Small Step. One Small Step is about that spark that makes mm -hmm. you want to pursue a certain dream. If, if that to me is about getting into Disney and being appreciative of the people who helped me get there, this film is a love letter to the thing that created that spark in the first place. Those old Disney cartoons that I saw when I was like three years old on the Disney channel, you know, Luna's watching the rocket take off this Andrew watching Disney cartoons. Like that was, yeah. <laughs> so this film has such a strange, they're very different films, but they have like some weird connective DNA for me as a, as a creative person. And um, as far as like being able to make those cuts, we cut so much out of one small step. And that film was all about how do you tell as much story as possible with a single image? And coming back to Locomotive, I had a few instances of that where I'm like, I know we wrote like 30 more seconds of music or like a whole number for this scene, but now I'm just gonna do it with like 10 shots instead of 30. Or mm -hmm. I'm going to just have a spinning newspaper with a tableau and replace an entire one minute sequence. Like, I, I'm not kidding that that new spinning newspaper where it says like Titan train tames terrain yeah. and you see railroad Baron's daughter heir to the von capital empire. Like that was a whole bit where there was like a world's fair with all these photographers like throwing their hats and Katrina takes a wine bottle and smashes it on Samson like he's the Titanic and everyone mm. cheers. Then the train zooms away and it was just supposed to be like this big celebration of the future. And I was like, I don't need this information in the story because we literally just saw this fucking guy build a city. Yeah. I don't need to show that again, but I do need to set up the idea that there's this railroad baron's daughter because we saw her in the office earlier when the contract is signed and she's a part of the rescue scene. And I wanted her to be there to show that there's like another element to mm -hmm. the future of this world. It kind of builds out the world a little bit more. So basically I just needed a little bit more of a bridging section to kind of keep her character present and relevant for the, the, the final climax of the film so you knew that there was like a, a life for this railroad after this big barren character so that when we time jump later we can imagine like a better world for that railroad so it was like just the idea of one image replacing a whole sequence that very much came from my experience on one small step even the lonely mountain scene with linus there was a whole extended bit where he's kind of going through these spooky like railway caverns and there's like other spooky old trains and there's creepy railway workers coming out and kind of like trying to tie him up in chains. And I was like, this is like a lot of business. It's a very Dumbo-esque vibe to it, it too. Yeah. It was, it was like a very Dumbo, but it was just too much business. And I liked all the kind of wacky designs that my character designer came up with for those like creepy, you know, uh, workers, but it was just, it wasn't conveying any new story information. The information was he's banished, he's obsolete. And musically, I wanted the solo bits that Morgana sang, you know, now his fate is signed away. And then what will become of Linus? No one knows. 
I wanted those solo bits to be like closer together musically because mm-hmm. that interlude with the workers was just like a long instrumental bit. And I, th- I was like, oh, I want it to feel more like a solo where there's like a beginning, a little little hiatus, and then she closes it. So musically, it felt better cutting it down. And so then I just adjusted picture to be like a series of simpler images to suit the cut down music. So uh, in that case, the music was kind of driving the cuts. And then in the case of the newspaper, it was just the story asking for more brevity. Um, So those were like the big cuts that I made. Another story change that happened was actually a result of my life. When I started the film, I was a single guy focused on my career. Um, And so the engineer was a single guy and he was actually like the boyfriend of the Baron's daughter. But Mm -hmm. I didn't like the nepotistic aspect of that. It made him feel more like unlikable, like always leaving his train to kind of appease his potential father-in-law. And I was like, no, I just want him to be like a working guy, a working family man whose job changes and he's just got to keep with the times. And so yeah. I switched out him dating the the Baron's daughter for just being a married man. So it expanded the cast of the film, but it also allowed for one of my favorite moments in the film that wasn't there before, which was you see him in his house kind of yeah. lamenting for Linus and you see the family that he's providing for in the background. Like they don't, they don't live his daily life at work. They're just the people that he loves. And it's like, I think when you're, when you're a working professional, you relate to that. Like, I love my job, but I love my family more. So I'm going to keep with the times that, that one scene that was animated by Slavin uh, Reese of Henry and his wife is one of my favorite scenes. And I think it adds some, meaning to the film that wasn't there before so like having him no longer be attached to the baron's daughter and having a, a wife kind of made it a better story for me personally and i think added some extra meaning to like he's got to move on beyond you know his train being retired um and then i think it made the ending nicer too because you see that as an old retired couple they they run this yeah. kind of novelty railroad together so that was that was nice too um the ending was kind of the same structurally but also it used to just be kind of like the people came together they rebuilt linus and then they all lived happily ever after but coming back to the film years later i was like there's an opportunity to kind of have a meta narrative here where i can like time jump to 1945 which is like 50 years after the events of the film and then we can see them as an old couple, but then we see them living in the 1940s, which is the era that this film takes place in. And I can show the passage of time just by having by two planes. Mustang planes fly overhead. That and was I so was badass. Like, that was, was so badass. That was a late stage addition because originally I had it, it crossfades and I had there was a Bugs Bunny cartoon where. It, it it's like 1970 80 90 and it's elmer fun and bugs bunny getting super old so i was gonna do those like decades <laughs> popping up on the screen but i was like i think it would be cooler to not do that and just hear the sound of mustangs flying overhead mm-hmm. and then it's kind of puts you right in that like v-day mindset of like the end of world war ii 1945 without anything but like a sound effect and a plane flying over you know that it's not the old west anymore and that was just like an aha moment for me i had to quickly model an airplane in the computer that matched the style of the trains but 
but just this, I just literally put that sound effect in at the last second. And I was like, yes. So then I added the planes and it used to just be fading out and then the birds fly by, but, but I had room there for the sound effect in the planes. And uh, that's just like one of those last minute things where you're like, okay, that's pretty cool. <laughs> there was, there was two moments I want to bring up that one being the one that was just, I am a huge fan of world. I spent you know seven years in the Navy. Uh-huh. So I am a huge fan of World War II history. As soon as I heard it, I was like, no, did they <laughs> just progress this story that much further? And then you see them come in and then you see that oh, they see them come off like this. And I'm like, yes, man, they did it. They did it again. <laughs> so that was their secondary world building, them building up a city and then them progressing the time with the new technology. Not only was Samson high tech, now you just uh, was made Samson technically obsolete because now you don't have to go state to state, side of country to side of country in seven days when you can go in seven hours now. You know what I mean? So I thought that was a really smart and intelligent way of you guys taking a scene without saying anything. And this is what I find so amazing about both these shorts. Literally nothing is said, literally, literally nothing is, is uttered, you know, that's not (laughs) lyric or maybe something here, but you don't have to, you don't have to hear anything. You don't have to hear words. You don't have to have, you know, somebody reading something or you don't have to have any dialogue to get what you guys were doing. You can see it. And that's what animation was back in the day. You just see it and you don't, you, everybody has this understanding of like, I know what's going on here. And you guys did this. My two favorite scenes was the one you just alluded to, or the one you just mentioned, we just talked about. And I loved the nightmare sequence. I don't know what you would call yeah. it, but him going up into the the train graveyard and yeah. the spooky trains and the 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 scene that I think about the most, it, it was the lightning flashes and then the 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 just the demonic looking trains, but the vultures. Them turning their head and dipping low. There was so much character in just that little moment of them dipping down because I see vultures every day. I work in the food industry, so they're always buzzing around. Oh, wow. You know the 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 um uh the, the dumpsters and stuff. So seeing them dip their heads down low and just that little action you guys created made it seem so real. I'm like, holy shit! Did this guy go out and watch vultures for a little while? What was he doing? <laughs> because the the movement was like spot on, and oh, then them you. just them just watching. You know, him go up the mountain, go to his essential death, you know, until you guys made him the hero again. You know, it was just those two moments in there. Those were my favorite parts. I love the spooky element. I love the vultures. And like I said, I loved seeing those planes come in because I was like, I know what era we're in right now. And you (laughs) just made it further. So, I, like I said, hats off for those two moments. Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah. well, I, I mean, I only animated less than half the film myself because I had such a great crew, but I really wanted to animate those airplanes myself. And I had to because it was like a last minute thing. And then the vultures, I I, I spent way too long animating that shot. I like obsessed <laughs> over every little like curl. Nope, of the you did just enough time. I loved every moment. <laughs> it's of also, it, like I said. it's a nod to a lot of people have said to me, oh, oh it's like the 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 vultures from the jungle book. And I'm like, no, it's the vultures from snow white. When mm. the witch falls to her death, the vultures look down and then they start circling like dinner time. And yeah. I just liked how as a kid dark that felt <laughs> like mm-hmm. even as a little kid, you've, I've never, I'd never even seen a real vulture. I knew what that meant, you know, yeah. like that was the end of her and they're going to go feed. And I, I just wanted people to be really concerned for this little guy because it really I mean it is the end for him and 
here's the bodily evidence to support it. Mm-hmm. So what's he going to do to get out of this? Like creating, creating some stakes in the story felt necessary to me to differentiate from other, maybe more modern family films that get made that feel like everything's kind of bright and sunny all the time. And I like the classic Disney films and the studio Ghibli films where death is a little bit more of a real possibility, a real uh, danger, a certainty in a way. And like any cowboy story, or even if you've seen Paul Bunyan or Pecos Bill or Johnny Appleseed, all of those stories end with the kind of, ambiguous demise of the title character and i and i thought that should be how how this makes you feel and there actually was a moment where he did die and then the the finale was going to be his imagining of his train heaven kind of like johnny appleseed and then i I left it a little more open-ended and maybe maybe you can imagine it is his version of heaven on earth who knows but I, i like imagining that they just um whether it's his actual afterlife or the real events the outcome is basically the same. He earned his kind of heaven on earth through, through his actions. And that's, uh, that's what it means to me anyway. <laughs> no sort of, good it deed done goes done. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether it's his afterlife or the reality, because for him, it's the same, uh, mm-hmm. the same wish fulfilled in a way. Um, anyway, so that's, that's what I have to say about that. But thank you for sharing your appreciation of those scenes. <laughs> oh man, no problem. Like I said, I loved I loved the whole thing, and then just being able to pick out some of the things that I grew up on, like you grew up on, and you got to put that in there. I got to put my my own spin. I was like, man, I wonder if that's Radigan because oh, it's yeah. very Vincent Price esque, you know. So just seeing that, and like I said, I I don't know what it was about those two vultures that I love so much. I, I maybe it was just the realism that it was that it, it felt like like just seeing that on a daily basis like are they looking at me are they looking at the bag of trash i'm throwing away what are they doing you know so i i like i said i love i love both of these movies um and both of them were so different yet so similar but still so different you know the brave locomotive <laughs> yeah. and one small step you know like i said you guys absolutely crushed it with both i can't wait to see what you're going to do next now that same question that we ended one small step with i'm going to turn it back around and with the brave locomotive yeah if you could say there is one scene in this movie or the short um this film this masterpiece that gives you everything you need to know about this movie is there one that stands out the most to you yeah um i would say musically and visually the the payoff of the ending, the reprise of the female trio coming in from the moment the planes fly overhead all the way to the, the end. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just love the, the payoff of the reprise. The passage of time has personal meaning for me, seeing this elderly couple doing what they love long past the utility of the service they're providing um, while the future marches on as, as the world does. Um, and it's still being a joyful thing that these things can coexist. Those last like five or six shots in the film, just and and seeing the passengers on the train, like they're living the future, but they're also kind of admiring and, and getting joy out of the past. Like just seeing that contrast of the past and the future together uh, and it being a positive thing uh, is why I love the ending so much. Beautiful. And if you could, uh, if you could sum up this whole fifteen-year passion project, (laughs) 
one word, one sentence, one phrase, what would it be? Tiring. I know, Andrew, I was going there as well. <laughs> 15 years is a long say time. Determination, because beautiful. I I never, you know, people people be like, why trains? Why this? Why melody time inspiration? You know, why why are you spending your time on this? You know, there's been a hundred versions of the little engine that could. And I'm just like, I just love it. <laughs> I just never fell out of love with it. And I think as a creative person, you have to listen to that. I've talked to other people making their passion projects before and they think it needs to be this. They think it needs to be that. Just do what you love because if you wake up and you're still in love with it, you won't fall out of love with it. And for me, this being so related to those core memories I have, not even just as a creative person, but just as a person, like the fact that this film is about my love for some of these earliest memories I have, I was never not going to be engaged by it or interested in what it meant to me. And I'm glad in a way that I waited nine years to come back to it because I had a different perspective on it and the film became more disciplined, more rich as a result. I think it would have been a shallower film if I had finished it years ago. And I think because I had the benefit of pausing it, having all these incredible life experiences and coming back to it with a longer lens, like I still love this, but I would change this. I would take this out and then I would do this better. Like that's what the final film represents for me is like that sort of selective curation of the things that were good about it to me from the beginning and then not so good about it going away and then just being able to execute with more precision and more uh, maturity to kind of do the best version of what I wanted to do. I wish I could go back in time and show the 23-year-old me the version of this that the 38-year-old me finished because I think the younger me would have been like, oh, <laughs> that was probably a good idea to take that out. Yeah, man, you write for that one, Andrew. In the future, you're right for that one too. <laughs> I, I want, I want to go back in time and show the younger me like how it turned out. Like, don't worry, you will finish it, but it is going to take a while, and you're going to take a long break from it. Um, there's, no, I'm never going to have another project in my life like this, and I'm kind of in love with it for that too, because I don't want to make another film that lives with me for 15 years, but I'm glad I did it with this one because it's such a part of my childhood and a part of my origin story that I'm glad it got to have this much of a uh, of a final push to come out into the world so like I said man I had such fun I had such fun watching these two I had such a great time talking to you I can't wait to have you back on because this has been a real blast man um, before I let you go um, if the fans want to come by and say hey Andrew I really really love what you do where can they find you on social media you can find me on X slash Twitter, uh, either through the Brave Locomotive handle or through A underscore Chesworth. You can find me on Instagram, also at the Brave Locomotive handle or Andrew underscore Chesworth. Um, those are the two that I'm the most active on. There's a Brave Locomotive Facebook page. You can also add me as a friend on Facebook, but I don't have a public artist page. But if you want to friend me, um, hopefully <laughs> you have a reason to and we can keep in touch. Uh, but yeah, reach out if you're interested. And then the Brave Locomotive is on my YouTube channel and you can watch 
um, One Small Step on Simply CG or on the Tyco Studios YouTube channel. Ladies and gentlemen, all those links will be in the description and the show notes. So just point, click, go tell Andrew what you thought. And uh, make sure you sign up for his Patreon page too, as well as sub to that YouTube channel where you can find all of the behind the scenes goodies and find out more in-depth info about the Brave Locomotive and One Small Step. Well, like I said, Andrew, this has been a blast. I can't wait to do it again. He's been Andrew. I've been Julian. This has been the What's My Head podcast, and this has been another piece of your childhood. Good night. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Before we go, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with the podcast today. I truly appreciate every download and listen we get. If you're liking what we're doing, drop us a five-star rating, drop us a review, tell a friend, and I'll see you next week.